thirty, one of them senseless, the other was dismounted by his horse taking fright, and before he could regain his saddle, Selim was upon him, a short hand-to-hand fight resulted in Selim's favor, leaving his adversaries upon the ground, one of them dead and the other mortally wounded, Selim called Ixon and returned to his horses, both the fugitives were thoroughly exhausted on reaching the valley, and found to their dismay that a stream they were obliged to cross was greatly swollen with recent rains in the mountains, they were anxious to put the stream between them and their remaining pursuers, and after a brief halt they plunged in with their horses, Selim crossed safely, his horse stemming the current and landing some distance below the point where he entered the water, Uxon was less fortunate, while in the middle of the stream her horse stumbled upon a stone, and sprang about so wildly as to throw her from the saddle, grasping the limb of a tree overhanging the water, she clung for a moment, but the horse sweeping against her, tore the support from her hand, with a loud cry to her terror-stricken lover, she sank beneath the waters and was dashed against the rocks a hundred yards below, day became night, the stars sparkled in the blue heavens, the moon rose and took her course along the sky, the wine sighed among the trees, morning tinged the eastern horizon, and the sun pushed above it, while Selim paced the banks of the river and watched the waters rolling, 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 as they carried his heart's idol away from him forever, and it was not until night again approached that he mounted his steed and rode away, heartbroken, and full of sadness, he ultimately made his way to his own tribe, but years passed before he recovered from the crushing weight of that blow, and when I saw him there was still upon his countenance a deep shadow which will never be removed, such is the story of Selim and Ixon. a more romantic one is hardly to be found, chapter XLV, one morning while I was in Barneal the doctor left me writing, and went out for a promenade, in half an hour he returned accompanied by a tall, well-formed man with a brunette complexion, and hair and mustache black as ebony, his dress was Russian, but the face impressed me as something strange, let me introduce you, said the doctor, to an officer of the Persian army, he has been eight years from home, and would like to talk with an American, we shook hands, and by way of getting on familiar footing, I opened my cigar case, Dr. Schmidt translated our conversation, the Persian speaking Russian very fairly, his story was curious and interesting, he was captured in 1858 near Herat, by a party of predatory Turkomans, his captors sold him to a merchant at Balkh where he remained some time. From Balkh he was sold to Kiva, and from Kiva to Bokhara. Once he escaped with a fellow captive, I asked if he was compelled to labor during his captivity, and received a negative reply. Soldiers and all others except officers are forced to all kinds of drudgery when captured by these barbarians. Officers are held for ransom, and their duties are comparatively light. Russian slaves are not uncommon in Central Asia, though less numerous than formerly. The Kyrgyz cripple their prisoners by inserting a horsehair in a wound in the heel. A man thus treated is lamed for life. He cannot use his feet in escaping, and care is taken that he does not secure a horse. The two fugitives traveled together from Bokhara, suffering great hardships in their journey over the steppes. They avoided all towns through fear of capture and subsisted upon whatever chance threw in their way. Once when near starvation they found and killed a sheep, they ate heartily of its raw flesh, and before the supply thus obtained was exhausted they reached the Russian boundary at Chuguchuk. One of the twain died soon afterward, and his companion in flight came to Barneal. The authorities would not let him go farther without a passport, 
and he had been in the town nearly a year at the time of my visit, through the Persian ambassador at St. Petersburg. He had communicated with his government at Tehran, and expected his passport in a few weeks. During the eight years that had elapsed since his capture this gentleman heard nothing from his own country. He had learned to speak Russian but could not read it. I told him of the completion of the Indo-European telegraph by way of the Euphrates and the Persian Gulf, and the success of electric communication between England and India. Naturally he was less interested concerning the Atlantic cable than about the telegraph in his own country. We shook hands at parting, and mutually expressed a wish to meet again in Persia and America. After his departure, the doctor commented upon the intelligent bearing and clear eye of the Persian, and then said, I have done several strange and unexpected things in my life, but I never dreamed I should be the interpreter between a Persian and an American at the foot of the Altai Mountains. I met at Barneal, a Prussian gentleman Mr. Randroff, who was sent to Siberia by the Russian Academy of Science. He knew nearly all the languages of Europe, and had spent some years in studying those of Central Asia. He could converse and read in Chinese, Persian, and Mongol, and I don't know how many languages and dialects of lesser note. His special mission was to collect information about the present and past inhabitants of Central Asia, and in this endeavor he had made explorations in the country of the Kyrgyz and beyond Lake Balkask. He was preparing for a journey in 1867 to Kashgar. Mr. Randroff possessed many archaeological relics gathered in his researches and exhibited drawings of many tumuli. He had a curious collection of spearheads, knives, swords, ornaments, stirrup irons, and other souvenirs of ancient days. He discoursed upon the ages of copper, gold, and iron, and told the probable antiquity of each specimen he brought out. He gave me a spearhead and a knife blade taken from a burial mound in the Kyrgyz country. You observe, said he, they are of copper and were doubtless made before the discovery of iron. They are probably 3,000 years old, and maybe more. In these tumuli, copper is found much better preserved than iron, though the latter is more recently buried. At this gentleman's house, I saw a Persian soldier who had been 10 years in captivity among the Turkomans, where he was beaten and forced to the lowest drudgery, and often kept in chains. After a long and patient waiting he escaped and reached the Siberian boundary, having no passport and unable to make himself understood, he was sent to Barneal and lodged in prison where he remained nearly two years. The Persian officer above mentioned, heard of him by accident, and procured his release. Mr. Randroff had taken the man as a house servant and a teacher of the Persian language. I heard him read in a sonorous voice several passages from the Quran. His face bore the marks of deep suffering, and gave silent witness to the story of his terrible captivity in the hands of the Turkomans. His incarceration at Barneal was referred to as an unfortunate oversight. Escaping from barbarian slavery he fell into a civilized prison, and must have considered Christian kindness more fanciful than real. He expected to accompany his countrymen on his return to Persia. The day before our departure, we were invited to a public dinner in honor of our visit. It took place at the club rooms, the tables being set in what was once the parquet of the theater. The officials from General Freeze downward, were seated in the order of their rank, and the post of honor was assigned to the two strangers. No ladies were present, and the dinner, so far as its gastronomic features went, was much like a dinner at Irkutsk or Kyotta. At the second course my attention was called to an excellent fish peculiar to the Obi and Yenisei rivers, 
It is a species of salmon under the name of Nalma, and ascends from the Arctic Ocean. Beef from the Kyrgyz steppes elicited our praise, and so did game from the region around Barneal. At the end of the dinner I was ready to answer affirmatively the inquiry. Awful inside, at the appearance of the champagne, Colonel Taskin of the Mining Engineers made a brief speech in English, and ended by proposing the United States of America and the health of the American stranger. Dr. Schmidt translated my response as well as my toast to the Russian Empire, and especially the inhabitants of Barneal. The doctor was then honored for his mammoth hunt, and made proper acknowledgement. Then we had personal toasts and more champagne with Russian and American music, and champagne again. And then we had some more champagne and then some champagne. When the tables were removed, we had impromptu dancing to lively music, including several Cossack dances, some familiar and others new to me. There is one of these dances which usually commences by a woman stepping into the center of the room and holding a kerchief in her right hand, moving gracefully to the music. She passes around the apartment, beckoning to one, hiding her face from another, gesticulating with extended arms before a third, and skillfully manipulating the kerchief all the while. When this sentimental pantomime is ended, she selects a partner and waves the kerchief over him. He pretends reluctance but allows himself to be dragged to the floor where the couple dance and do. The dance includes a great deal of entreaty, aversion, hope, and despair, all in dumb show, and ends by the lady being led to a seat. I saw this dance introduced in a ballet at the Grand Theatre in Moscow, and wondered why it never appeared on the stage outside the Russian Empire. One of the gentlemen who danced admirably had recovered the use of his legs two years before, after being unable to walk no less than 28 years. He declared himself determined to make up for lost time, and when I left the hall, he continued entertaining himself. During the dancing, a party gathered around where I stood and I observed that every lady was assembling as if to witness some fun. Be on your watch, a friend whispered, they are going to give you the Polkidovate. The Polkidovate is nothing more nor less than a tossing up at the hands of a dozen or twenty Russians. It has the effect of intoxicating a sober man. But I never heard that it sobered a drunken one. Major Collins was elevated in this way at Kyotka, and declares that the effect, added to the champagne he had previously taken, was not at all satisfactory. Remembering his experience, and fearing I might go too high or come too low, I was glad when a diversion was made in my favor by a gentleman coming to bid me good night. The custom of tossing up a guest is less prevalent in Siberia than ten or twenty years ago. It was formerly a mark of high respect, but I presume few who were thus honored would have hesitated to forego the distinguished courtesy. One of the gentlemen I met at dinner had a passion for trotting horses. He asked me many questions about the famous race horses in America, from Lady Suffolk down to the latest two twenties. I answered to the best of my abilities, but truth required me to say I was not authority in equine matters. The gentleman treated me to a display of trotting by a Siberian horse five years old, and carefully trained. I forget the exact figures he gave me, but believe they were something like two thirty to the mile. To my unhorsey eye, the animal was pretty, and well formed, and I doubt not he would have acquitted himself finely on the Bloomingdale Road. The best horses in Siberia are generally from European Russia, the Siberian climate being unfavorable to careful breeding. Kyrgyz horses are excellent under the saddle, but not well reputed for draft purposes. I gave out some washing at Barneal, and accidentally included a paper collar in the lot, 
When the laundress returned the linen, she explained with much sorrow the dissolution of the collar when she attempted to wash it. I presume it was the first of its kind that ever reached the Altai Mountains. We arranged to leave Barneal at the conclusion of the dinner at the club room. First we proceeded to the house of Colonel Taskin where we took positively the last glass of champagne. Our preparations at our lodgings were soon completed, and the baggage carefully stowed. A party of our acquaintances assembled to witness our departure, and passed through a round of kissing as the Yenshika earned Godovi. They did not make an end of handshaking until we were wrapped and bundled into the sleigh. It was a keen, frosty night with the stars twinkling in the clear heavens as we drove outside the yard of our hotel. Horses, driver, and travelers were alike exhilarated in the sharp atmosphere and we dashed off at courier pace. The driver was a musical fellow, and endeavored to sing a Russian ballad while we were galloping over the glistening snow. We had a long ride before us. The wide step of Baraba, or Barabinsky, lies between Barneal and the foot of the Ural Mountains. There was no town where we expected to stop before reaching Tuman, 1500 versts away. As the luxuries of life are not abundant on this road we stored our sleighs with provisions, and hoped to add bread and eggs at the stations. Our farewell dinner was considered a sufficient preparation for at least a hundred and fifty versts. I nestled down among the furs and hay which formed my bed, leaned back upon the pillows and exposed only a few square inches of visage to the nipping and eager air. A few versts from town we stuck upon an icy bank where the smooth feet of our horses could not obtain holding ground. After a while we attached one horse to a long rope, and enabled him to pull from the level snow above the bank. I expected the Yenshik would ask us to lighten the sleigh by stepping out of it. An American driver would have put us ashore without ceremony, but custom is otherwise in Siberia. Horses and driver are engaged to take the vehicle and its burden to the next station, and it is the traveler's privilege to remain in his place in any emergency short of an overturn. The track was excellent having been well trodden since the storm. We followed our former road a hundred versts from Barneal, and then turned to the left to strike the great post route near Kyansk. It was necessary to cross the river Obi, and as we reached the station near it during the night, we waited for daylight. The ice was sufficiently thick and firm, but the danger arose from holes and thin places that could not be readily discovered in the dark. While crossing we met a peasant who had tumbled into one of these holes and been fished out by his friends, he looked unhappy, and no doubt felt so, his garments were frozen stiff, and altogether he resembled a bronze statue of Franklin after a freezing rainstorm, the thermometer fell on the first night to 15 degrees below zero, and to about 20 degrees just before sunrise, the colder it grew the better was our speed, the horses feeling the crisp air and the driver being anxious to complete his stage in the least time possible. With uniform roads and teams one can judge pretty fairly of the temperature by the rate at which he travels. From Barneal we did not have the horses of the post, but engaged our first trikes of a peasant who offered his services. Our Yenshik took us to his friend at the first station, and this operation was regularly repeated. Occasionally our two Yenshiks had different friends, and our sleighs were separately outfitted. When this was the case the teams were speedily attached out of a spirit of rivalry. We frequently endeavored to excite the Yenshiks to the noble ambition of a race by offering a few kopecks to the winner. When the teams were furnished from different houses the temper of emulation roused itself spontaneously. Twice we left the post route to make shortcuts that saved 30 or 40 miles travel. On those side roads we found plenty of horses, 
and were promptly served. The inhabitants of the steppe are delighted at the opportunity to carry travelers at post rates. The latter are saved the trouble of exhibiting their Kadrishnia at every station, and generally prefer to employ private teams. The horses were small, wiry beasts of Tartar breed, and upper strangers to combs and brushes, while at breakfast on the second morning we were accosted by an old and decrepit beggar. The fellow wore a decoration consisting of a box six or seven inches square suspended on his breast by a strap around his neck, though seedy enough to set up business on his own account, he explained that he was begging for the church, his honesty was evidently in question as the box was firmly locked and had an aperture in the top for receiving money, we each gave ten kopecks into his hand, and I observed that he did not drop the gratuity into the box, I was reminded of the man who owed a grudge against a railroad line, and declared that the company should never have another cent of his money. A friend asked how he would prevent it, as he frequently traveled over the road. Easy enough, was the calm reply. I shall hereafter pay my fare to the conductor. The morning after reaching Barneal, I had a fine twinge of rheumatism that adhered during my stay. Quite to my surprise it left me on the second day after our departure, and like the bad boy in the story never came back again. The medical faculty can have the benefit of my experience, and prescribe as follows for their rheumatic patients. Saint and he, O large SL, S are there, Z, start at night on a long sleigh ride over a Siberian road with the thermometer below zero. A buran arose in the afternoon of the second day, but was neither violent nor very cold. At Barneal I had my sleigh specially prepared to exclude drifting snow. I ordered a liberal supply of buttons and straps to fasten the boot to the hood. Besides an overlapping flap of thick felt to cover the crevice between them, the precaution was well taken, and with our doors thoroughly closed we were not troubled with much snow. The drivers were exposed on the outside of the sleigh, and had the full benefit of the wind. At the end of the first drive after this storm commenced our yamshik might have passed for an animated snow statue. The road was tolerable, and a great improvement upon that from Krasnoyarsk to Tomsk. Chapter XLVI the great step of Barabra is quite monotonous, as there is very little change of scenery in traveling over it. Whoever has been south or west from Chicago, or west from Leavenworth, in winter, can form a very good idea of the step. The winter appearance is much like that of a western prairie covered with snow. Whether there is equal similarity in summer I am unable to say. The country is flat or slightly undulating, and has a scanty growth of timber. Sometimes there were many versts without trees, then there would be a scattered and straggling display of birches, and again the growth was dense enough to be called a forest. The principal arboreal productions are birches, and I found the houses, sheds, and fences in most of the villages constructed of birch timber. The open part of the steppe, far more extensive than the wooded portion, was evidently favorable to the growth of grass, as I saw a great deal protruding above the snow. There are many marshy and boggy places, covered in summer with a dense growth of reeds. They are a serious inconvenience to the traveler on account of the swarms of mosquitoes, gnats, and other tormenting insects that they produce. While crossing the Baraba swamps in summer, men and women are obliged to wear veils as a protection against these pests. Horses are sometimes killed by their bites, and frequently became thin in flesh from the constant annoyance. A gentleman told me that once when crossing the swamps one of his horses, maddened by the insects, broke from the carriage and fled out of sight among the tall reeds. The Yanshiks, who knew the locality, 
said the animal would certainly be killed by his wing pursuers in less than 24 hours. There is much game on the steppe in summer, birds being more numerous than beasts. The only winter game we saw was the white partridge, Kurapapti, of which we secured several specimens. The steppe is fertile, and in everything the soil can produce the people are wealthy. They have wheat, rye, and oats in abundance, but they little attention to garden vegetables. In 1866 the crops were small in all parts of Siberia west of Lake Baikal, and I frequently heard the peasants complaining of high prices. They said such a season was almost unprecedented. On the steppe oats were 40 kopecks, and wheat and rye 70 kopecks a pood, equaling about 30 cents and 75 cents a bushel respectively. In some years wheat has been sold for 10 kopecks the pood, and other products at proportionate prices. We paid 12 kopecks the dizane for eggs, which frequently sell for one-third that sum. The fertility of the soil cannot be turned to great account, as there is no general market. Men and horses engaged in the transportation and postal service create a limited demand, but there is little sale beyond this. With so small a market there are very few rich inhabitants on the steppe, and with edibles at a cheap rate. There are few cases of extreme poverty. We rarely saw beggars. And on the other hand we found nobody who was able to dress in broadcloth and fine linen and fare sumptuously every day. Hay is abundant, and may be cut on any unclaimed part of the steppe. I was told that in some places the farmers of a village assemble on horseback at an appointed time. At a given signal all start for the haying spots, and the first arrival has the first choice. There is enough for all, and in ordinary seasons no grass less than knee-high is considered worth cutting. At the villages we generally obtained excellent bread of unbolted wheat flour, rye being rarely used. There were many windmills of clumsy construction, the wheels having but four wings, and the whole concern turning on a pivot to bring its face to the wind. No bolting apparatus has been introduced, and the machinery is of the simplest and most primitive character. It was a period of fasting, just before Christmas, and our whole obtainable bill of fare comprised bread and eggs. As we reached a certain station we asked what we could get to eat. Everything, was the prompt reply of the smotrial. We were hungry, and this information was cheering. Give us some ski, if you please, said the doctor. An inquiry in the kitchen showed this edible to be just out. Some beef. Then, there was no beef to be had. Cutlets were like negative. Any pillmania, was our next inquiry. Nearly, Nizni, the everything hunted down consisted of eggs bread, and hot water, we brought out a boiled ham, that was generally our pasty resistance, and made a royal meal, if trichina spirales existed in Siberian ham, it was never able to disturb us, we found no fruit as there are no orchards in Siberia, attempts have been made to cultivate fruit, but none have succeeded, a little production about the size of the whirlberry was shown me in eastern Siberia, where it was pickled and served up as a relish with meat. This is the Siberian apple, said the gentleman who first exhibited it, and it has degenerated to what you see since its introduction from Europe. On dissecting one of these little berries, I found it possessed the anatomy of the apple, with seeds smaller than pinheads. Kotzebue and other travelers say there are no bees in Siberia, but the assertion is incorrect. I saw native honey enough to convince me on this point, and learned that bees are successfully raised in the southern part of Asiatic Russia. We were not greatly delayed in our team changing, though we lost several hours in small installments. We had two sleighs, and although there were anywhere up to a dozen men to prepare them, 
The harnessing of one team was generally completed before the other was led out. When the horses were ready, the driver often went to fetch his dihar and make his toilet. In this way we would lose five or ten minutes, a small matter by itself, but a large one went under heavy multiplication. We took breakfast and dinner daily in the peasants' houses, which we found very much like the stations. We carried our own tea and sugar, and with a fair supply of provisions, added what we could obtain. Tea was the great solace of the journey, and proved, above all others, the beverage which cheers. I could swallow several cups at a sitting, and never failed to find myself refreshed. It is far better than vodka or brandy for traveling purposes, and many Russians who are pretty free drinkers at home adhere quite closely to tea on the road. The merchant traveler drinks enormous quantities, and I have seen a couple of these word or these empty a 20 cup samovar with no appearance of surfeit. So much hot liquid inside generally sets them into a perspiration. Nothing but loaf sugar is used, and there is a very common practice of holding a lump in one hand and following a sip of the unsweetened tea with a nibble at the sugar. When several persons are engaged in this rasping process a curious sound is produced. There are many Tartars living on the steppe, but we saw very little of them, as our changes were made at the Russian villages, before the reign of Catherine II. There was but a small population between Tuman and Tomsk, and the road was more a fiction than a fact. The governor-general of Siberia persuaded Catherine to let him have all conscripts of one levy instead of sending them to the army. He settled them in villages along the route over the steppe, and the wisdom of his policy was very soon apparent. The present population is made up of the descendants of these and other early settlers, together with exiles and voluntary emigrants of the present century. Several villages have a bad reputation, and I heard stories of robbery and murder. In general the dwellers on the steppe are reputable, and they certainly impressed me favorably. I was told by a Russian that Catherine once thought of giving the Siberians a constitution somewhat like that of the United States of America, but was dissuaded from so doing by one of her ministers. The villages were generally built each in a single street, or at most, into streets. The largest houses had yards or enclosures, into which we drove when stopping for breakfast or dinner. The best windows were of glass or talc, fixed in frames, and generally made double. The poorer peasants contented themselves with windows of ox or cow stomachs, scraped thin and stretched in drying. There were no iron stoves in any house I visited, the Russian picha or brick stove being universal. Very often we found the women and girls engaged in spinning. No wheel is used for this purpose the entire apparatus being a hand spindle and a piece of board. The flax is fastened on an upright board, and the fingers of the left hand gather the fibers and begin the formation of a thread. The right hand twirls the spindle, and by skillful manipulation a good thread is formed with considerable rapidity. A great deal of hemp and flax is raised upon the step, and we found rope abundant, cheap, and good. I bought ten fathoms of half-inch rope for forty kopecks a peasant bringing it to a house where we breakfasted. When I paid for it the mistress of the house quietly appropriated ten kopecks, remarking that the roadmaker owed her that amount. She talked louder and more continuously than any other woman I met in Siberia, and awakened my wonder by going barefooted into an open shed and remaining there several minutes. She stood in snow and on ice, but appeared quite unconcerned. Our thermometer at the time showed a temperature of 21 degrees below zero. The only city on the steppe is Omsk, at the junction of the Oem and Irdish, and the capital of western Siberia. It is said to contain 12,000 inhabitants, 
and its buildings are generally well constructed. We did not follow the post route through Omsk, but took a cut off that carried us to the northward and saved a hundred versts of sleigh riding. The city was founded in order to have a capital in the vicinity of the Kyrgyz frontier, but since its construction the frontier line has removed far away. In 1834 a conspiracy, extending widely through Siberia, was organized at Omsk. M. Piotrowski gives an account of it, from which I abridge the following, it was planned by the Abbe Sieroshusky, a Polish Catholic priest who had been exiled for taking part in the rebellion of 1831. He was sent to serve in the ranks of a Cossack regiment in western Siberia, and after a brief period of military duty was appointed teacher in the military school at Omsk. His position gave him opportunity to project a rebellion. His plan was well laid, and found ready supporters among other exiles, especially the Poles. Some ambitious Russians and Tartars were in the secret. The object was to secure the complete independence of Siberia and the release of all prisoners. In the event of failure it was determined to march over the Kyrgyz steppes to Tashkent, and attempt to reach British India. Everything was arranged, both in eastern and western Siberia. The revolt was to begin at Omsk, where most of the conspirators were stationed, and where there was an abundance of arms, ammunition, supplies, and money. The evening before the day appointed for the rising, the plot was revealed by three Polish soldiers, who confessed all they knew to Colonel de Grave. The governor of Omsk, Sieroshevsky and his fellow conspirators in the city were at once arrested, and orders were dispatched over the whole country to secure all accomplices and suspected persons. About a thousand arrests were made, and as soon as news of the affair reached St. Petersburg, a commission of inquiry was appointed. The investigations lasted until 1837, when they were concluded and the sentences confirmed. Six principal offenders, including the chief were each condemned to 7,000 blows of the plate, or stick, while walking the gauntlet between two files of soldiers. This is equivalent to a death sentence, as very few men can survive more than 4,000 blows. Only one of the six outlived the day when the punishment was inflicted, some falling dead before the full number of strokes had been given. The minor offenders were variously sentenced, according to the extent of their guilt. Flogging with the stick being followed by penal colonization or military service in distant garrisons. It is said that the priest Sieroshevsky while undergoing his punishment recited in a clear voice the Latin prayer. Miserme, Dies, Secundum Magnum Misericordium Tuam. On approaching the Irdish we found it bordered by hills which presented steep banks toward the river. The opposite bank was low and quite level. It is a peculiarity of most rivers in Russia that, 